Revelers, this is a long episode, but you know what? I don't care, and I'm just going to mark Marin this shit up, and I'm going to talk and talk. He talks like 15 minutes at the beginning of every episode, and he just talks about what's going on in his life. So I want to preface this episode by saying it was recorded on May 10th, and then I went out of town, and then I got back in near the beginning of June, and I got busy, And then my internet was out for four days. And so finally, this episode is going out into the world June 8th. I just can't believe it's already June 8th. Anyway, I also believe that things happen when they're meant to happen. And so I'd love to hear from my revelers of why it was meant to happen now at June 8th or the middle of June, whenever you're listening to it, instead of the middle of May. I mean, the world has changed so much just since the middle of May. Everyone's out doing things, even if they're not vaccinated, and the world has just gotten busy, busy, busy. So hopefully you have time to listen to this, and I think it's a really super empowering episode. I'm going to ask that you listen all the way to the end and then share it. I know that all of you know someone who needs to listen to this and hopefully buy Holly's book. So without further ado, here's Holly Terry. Hello and welcome to Revel Revel. Today, my guest is a friend and author, Holly Terry. Welcome, Holly. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for sending me your book. Before we get to that, because there's a lot there to talk about. How the heck are you? Haven't seen you in years. I know it's been ages. I kind of miss all that animal protection goodness that we were doing back then, but I'm good. I'm having a lot of fun writing and living in Fort Collins. How are you? Good. So I know the exact last time we saw each other, but I don't know how we met. So let's start with the last time we saw each other. We ran into each other in Fort Collins, the New Belgium Brewery, and it's just random. There you were yeah, so on the lawn with, now I know the names, Jason and North. That's right. Yes. That's yes. a fun place to hang out. So I know that we met through animal advocacy, but I don't know exactly how we met. Like, was there a meeting where we met or do you remember? It was probably something related to Colorado Voters for Animals, which was this passion project when I was I was lobbying at the time um, and then on the side doing this political nonprofit for animal protection, which sounds like the same thing, like lobbying for animal protection and then doing mm-hmm. political advocacy for animal protection. Um, at the same time, it, it sounds similar and they're definitely compatible, but fundraising for candidates is this whole next level of campaign finance regulations and of very specific infrastructure, especially in Colorado, that has to be set up to do that kind of work. And I got really super jazzed about filling that void and and taking animal protection into this kind of fringe marginal issue into something that really supported candidates and got people elected and was a legitimate voting block. So I poured a lot of my time into that organization. I think we had events and 
materials, scorecards, that kind of thing. And we probably got together through that at some point. And how did you get into that? I came out of the womb wanting to protect animals. I don't ever remember thinking I would do anything else. And Hmm. I started out in animal shelters in my career and continued just at every turn to feel like I want to do something bigger, less one animal at a time and more systemic. So that geared me towards lobbying. Once I was lobbying, which is you know, once someone is elected and you're trying to pass policy, you're lobbying. And I was doing that as a profession, working for nonprofits and then as my, my own firm and noticed that void of, okay, well, once people are elected, I can ask them to help me with policy, but the picture is incomplete if I'm not helping to get them elected, get the humane candidates elected and get the inhumane candidates defeated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's only some districts where that's even possible, where there's any wiggle room. But I learned about the need for that from the lobbying piece, basically just running my head against the wall over and over and over again, trying to pass animal protection legislation and feeling like it's not a priority for a lot of people who are elected. Right. So you said that you came out of the womb and it just sounds like it was a normal, very makes sense sort of progression in your life to go from maybe working in a shelter to animal advocacy at the Capitol. But um, as you know, the theme is really about how things happen. Um, You know, whether you call it the universe or serendipity or chance or God or fate or whatever. And so as far as that goes, you really feel like you were set on this course from the womb? Yes. And Part of it was my love for animals and part of it, but also still from the womb, is was this native talent, genius, brilliance. Everybody calls it something different, you know, but that that specific gift that each one of us has, um, I refer to it a lot as my true self, was geared towards really big picture solutions and relationships. So you know, why people do the things that they do and what influences them and what doesn't influence them and how to most efficiently use energy in relationships. So all of that came together with lobbying and then political advocacy, because I was always trying to figure out how to influence and when to stop trying so that I didn't just drain out. You know, there's for 100 elected legislators at the state level in Colorado, you know, a third of them just, I wasn't going to move them no matter what. And understanding that and drawing those lines and knowing when to give up and knowing where to invest in more effort has always been the thing that I am fascinated with and drawn to and good at in my life. Yeah. And you're the, you're one of the few people from my work with uh, animals that I still keep in touch with. There's only like two, maybe maybe three more. And I'm not exactly sure why, but I've always felt kind of simpatico with you. And then I read your book and I was like, wow, we're a lot alike. <laughs> and same, I think outlook and approach and practicality and pragmatism and things like that. And so even what you were just saying right there, I thought, yep, that's very practical. Yeah, I definitely feel that sense of 
causiness, you know, and to recognize that in you where the integrity of it matters to me a lot. I care so much about animal protection because of a, a general interest in compassion and empathy in the world. So of course that to me extends to my whole life, my outlook all around 360 degrees um, is about, you know, cooperation and progress and peace and love and all of those sorts of things. So I've always kind of felt that too, meeting you and knowing that it doesn't just stop at, at animal protection. I've never totally understood the competition between animal protection and environmentalism and protection of children. And I'm like, and you know, equality in the world and racial equality and gender equality and smashing the patriarchy. It's all the same damn thing to me. Yeah, exactly. And people would act like, why is that your hill to die on? And I'm like, well, it's a hill. It's part of the whole mountain. You know, I don't understand, uh, you know, and I get it if they're like struggling with putting food on the table for dinner tonight, you know, this very moment that you can't see the big picture. But otherwise, if you're not dealing with that immediate thing, you know, if you have another cause, why is your cause so much different? Why can't it all be just working for the greater whole? I don't, yeah, the divisions drive me nuts. Yeah. And it's, it is that way in politics and policy to some extent, because there's finite bandwidth. Mm -hmm. and finite priorities. And these issues do end up competing with one another. And on the tactical level, you can advocate for something that hurts something else that you care about, of course. I mean, we all know that the unintended mm -hmm. consequences thing is real and it happens all over the place. But that big picture tendency that I have and that it seems like you have too is we're all connected <laughs> and we, nobody wants to live in a world where we don't have elephants and rhinos and polar bears. Nobody wants that. And the destruction of the natural world is going to affect people in the way that systems of oppression always affect people, which is people of color first and poor people first. And so it's all so super connected to me that every time I run into like this tactical competition thing, I want to zoom out. And look bigger and see where are where's where is the really big important touch point the place we need to progress from. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, because we have to find that points of connection. There is a Venn diagram meeting place somewhere with everybody. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right now, I'm geeking out on on the patriarchy, as I'm sure you can tell from the book. But yeah, I that's where it feels. You know, it's this structure. It is this yeah. big overarching over everything structure. It's built to conquer and dominate. And maybe that made sense when our biggest threat was saber-toothed tigers, but we cannot claw climate change's eyes out. Right. So it's, it's, it's a structure that needs to go. Well, well said. Okay. So before we really do a deep dive into that, let's just go back a little bit so that I can get a sense of you before I met you. So you're originally from Maryland, right? Yeah, I was born in Virginia, but moved to Maryland by the time I was 10. So I, it's always this, you know, half and half Virginia, Maryland question about where I'm from. But 
the roots in my family are so much Virginia. Just uh, my parents were both born there. I was born there. My brother was born there. And my parents' families were from there for generations. And what were you like as a kid? I was very energetic. My nickname, one of my nicknames was Wild Woman. (laughs) Very adventurous, very outgoing, very performative, (laughs) you know, funny, picky. Those are probably the biggest adjectives. Well, I see you haven't changed much. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And what brought you to Colorado and when? I moved to Colorado after a year of AmeriCorps following college. <gasps> yeah. AmeriCorps too. Yay. I was in Trout Lake, Washington. So I went from, from college, James Madison University in Virginia, to Trout Lake, Washington, 40 wow. minutes straight north of Hood River, Oregon, right at the base of Mount Adams. Beautiful. And far. So like just went as far away as I could go and still be in the continental United States. And what was your service project there? I was on the conservation team and we mostly built barbed wire fences around riparian areas to keep cattle out. We did. I did riparian zone work too, but I had rivers and creeks. Mm, we did, we did some willow plants some yes. willow staking and too. mostly fence building. I mean, I got really good with barbed wire fence building, <laughs> a random trait and skill that I would not use much the rest of my life. <laughs> exactly. Right. Okay. And then from Washington to... And then from Washington, a uh, brief step back home to buy a little car and mm-hmm. then just relocated to Colorado because I knew somebody who knew somebody. I knew I was not an East Coast girl and uh, Colorado sounded beautiful. And I just picked a spot and went. And how did you pick it? You know, like literally, did you close your eyes and go on the map or how did you pick it? When I lived in Washington, I felt like I took this huge drastic turn. I mean, I, we, I was living in essentially a hippie commune. And I loved it. I feel like I I learned more in those 11 months than I did in the previous 16 years of schooling and felt like, and this is actually in hindsight, I'm not sure what I was making the decision based on at the time, but in hindsight, I was like, I'm not quite all the way on the right East Coast and I'm not quite all the way on the left hippie commune. Hmm, I don't know, maybe the middle, Colorado. And I knew that it would, had a reputation for being a beautiful natural environment. And I knew I wanted something like that. I don't remember calculating sunshine, but maybe it was subconscious because as much as I loved Washington, that's just not the right climate for me. Yeah. I am part lizard and (laughs) my favorite sport is sitting on a rock in the sun. So (laughs) (laughs) that might've been subconscious, but it was fortuitous. Right. Well, um, you know, I love the whys and the hows and how things all came together. And so this person that you knew, was it like a random serendipitous thing or did you know him really well? I knew somebody who knew them. I didn't know her at all. And I didn't move in with her, although she did help me connect with the with the people who had a room for rent. So it was just kind of like one tiny miniature touch point. And it's not even someone I'm in touch with now. So not an important relationship, but really like a Reinvention. And another in hindsight element is that my family is my family of origin is pretty problematic. And we're totally disconnected now. 
and it would be decades before, you know, A to B. But there was something in me that wanted to get far away. Mm-hmm. I'm something I'm grateful for. Yeah. I think that's another similarity. Uh, you know, I don't have any family here either. I want to live where I want to live, not just because my family's there, you know, that kind of a thing. And I'm preparing to go and see them for the first time since 2019, you know, because of COVID and it's always stressful and problematic Yeah. anyway. But after such a long time, I feel like the pressure's even worse. So, yeah. so yeah, when I was reading your book, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not ready for this boundary. You know, we've been living apart for so long and now I'll be in, in their house and all this stuff at all, you know. And no one triggers us better than our families of origin. No one, no one. No one so at all. I, so if we can just start there and then cycle back out, I would love to talk to you about the iterations because as I'm reading your book, and I'm picturing the spiral of iterations. I'm picturing sometimes a nice, tiny, tight spiral. And other times I am picturing such big loops that you can hardly even see any progress, you know? And and that's what I'm really afraid of, probably that second one as far as this visit. So let's talk about iterations and what that spiral really looks like in messy reality for what you've seen. Sure. Well, the spiral shape takes form in my mind so predominantly when I'm talking about boundaries or relationships at all because of the way human brains are built. I mean, we repeat patterns. It is what we do. No one is an exception to this. It is a scientific reality of brains and that really big, broad spiral that you were talking about, if you, if you, if you stretch it out enough, it's a circle. Mm. And it just goes round and round and round and, and you you have points. It's a cycle. It's got its good points, but it doesn't really change over time or it's such a big, wide, flat spiral that it doesn't change in any way that matters, that frees mm. up any of your energy or gives you any sort of relief or payback. So the iterations that are productive, that move you towards a new reality over time, always involve examining the cycle and becoming an expert of it. Just, I mean, dissecting it and really understanding the anatomy of it. Okay, I do this and then they do that and then I do this and then they do that and studying it instead of shaming yourself about it because the repeat causes shame. And shame is the worst one, don't you think? Like, just oh yeah, uh, it's the it's it's. I say it's most productive when it's gone, <laughs> so you can't yeah. Yeah, avoid yeah. it. You can't pretend it's not there. Put it in the shadow. But if you face it and feel it and let it go, then you can learn and really become an expert at that at that cycle. And the next time that things start to come around, I do this, they do that, I do this, they do that, you can see it one step before it happens and know that you have a choice. And maybe on that iteration, all you can do is know you have a choice. Maybe you don't have time to make it. Maybe you don't have strength to make it, but you have recognized you've, you've tapped into an awareness that was a choice. I did the same thing I always do. So maybe next time on the next iteration, you see it two steps sooner 
and you can make a different choice. And you have those points all along the way and you have them over and over again because human brains repeat patterns. And if you can kind of harness the wisdom of that, become an expert of it, really dissect the anatomy with as little judgment as you possibly can, you, you can work your way more gently out into a new place. So I'm glad we actually started there. I think everyone's probably picturing as they're listening to this, the whole Groundhog Day version of their lives. But how did you get so smart and so fluent in all this stuff? Let's talk about your journey to this self-discovery and all the steps that happen along the way to get you to the point where you publish this book. It, it probably goes back to that original um, genius, brilliance, whatever you want to call it, that special gift, true self piece that has always been with me. Part of it is under, like really dissecting and understanding relationships and the other side of it is articulating it so that people can understand. It's right in line with lobbying. It's taking a, a complex topic and understanding it well enough that I can explain it in a variety of different ways and use different metaphors to draw pictures in people's minds of what this solution looks like. So I'm kind of tapping into things that I've always had with me and then laying them over my real life, most notably in my marriage, because things cycle fast in a marriage. You know, mm. you you're you're going to see your family for the first time in two years, but you know, you see the person you live with all the time. It's right. these really drawn out spirals in some cases and constant practice in a marriage or with anyone that you live with and have an intimate relationship with. So in my marriage, I wanted very much to stay in the relationship. So my motivation was extremely high and I like to solve problems. I will, as many times as I have, you know, blocked somebody from my phone as a part of my boundary work, I have worked really hard at the relationships I care about too. And in my relationship with Jason, I found that when I explained to him, when I, I would examine the cycle, know when I had opportunities that we were both pretty calm to try to make my case, to, to look back at what had happened or look forward at what I imagined would happen and articulate and, you know, pull out my metaphors and my spirals and all these things and see if I could make my case and feel heard, feel like he understood what I was saying and understood why it didn't work for me and understood why it was a fair request for me to ask that we both work on changing this. And then I'd start to get rewards. I mean, it worked. Years of counseling too. So not just but, my brilliant communication skills. <laughs> right. So did you start off on this path and then say, okay, I'm getting some rewards, but I need help and then seek counseling or did the counseling start first? The counseling was actually part of a pattern I recognized I was doing. That That's the ironic part is this, you know, seeing what's happening, breaking 
picking it apart, articulating it, getting just mega verbal would do was eventually some a habit I needed to break in mm. my relationship with him. I mean, at first it was helping him see what I was trying to explain. And but who wants to be talked at like this all the time in your intimate right. relationship at dinner? You don't want that. So eventually I got to a place where I was watching the cycle and looking for my choice points and realized like this hyperverbal explaining everything that's going on thing is is the newest pattern I need to break. And carrying the emotional load of explaining like this is why that type of communication doesn't work for me is draining me and I don't want to do it anymore. And that was an opportunity for me to say, you have to get into counseling. And he what he did get into counseling and I it did not turn into a big like deal breaker. But it it could have been if he'd really refused, I think it probably and and for so many people, it is the deal breaker that the man will not go to counseling is right the thing that ends up being like we can't move on from here. So I'm grateful right. that he did. So you were already in counseling, you tell him he needs to get in counseling. Were you going to the same counselor or different? We tried a variety of different things. I have my counselor that I was going to before he started was, and still is a really important partner as it turns out. And she does his regular counseling. Now I am not in regular counseling very much at the moment. And we have done counseling together with her. So she's the primary counselor for the couple. We've, I, it's been most productive for us when we are not in counseling together. We've also had a different couples counselor together, and that was a train wreck. I, mm. I stormed out of that one and slammed the door. <laughs> so they don't all work. I mean, that's just, I think, a lesson in finding the right fit and not giving up. Right. And I think you know that um, my sponsor for the podcast is betterhelp.com, which is a counseling company that's all across the world, really. But I think they've got over a million people just in the United States using it. Fabulous. It is is so exciting. It's really, really, really exciting news to me that people have better access, easier access, and less stigma about unraveling the things that hurt them in childhood because it's the key to everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you are working on your marriage, you're in counseling. What else is happening in your life that is preparing you for writing your book, Power Boundaries? The other really big thing was an elected official, Steve Lebsock, who was the other person that I was in a really close relationship with for years. So, you know, I talked about Jason, my husband, and we were together so much and cycling so rapidly that we had all of these examples to work with. But I was also spending a ton of time in a work context with this elected official because he was the undeniable hands-down champion on animal protection he sponsored my bills and chaired my caucuses and he he was everywhere if any other elected official got a request about animal protection they would forward it to him 
So it was an all roads to Steve Lepsock situation. And in that way, he was my closest political ally for five years. And we worked very closely together. And there grew to be an element of control beyond just animal protection bills. He thought that I was smart and talented, and I liked that. And he wanted to increase my credibility and my legitimacy around the Capitol, and I liked that. But he really wasn't able to over time. The more I got to know him, the more I'm like, you can't increase my credibility and legitimacy because you don't have much yourself. Mm. And the more that I align with you, the more the smart women in the Capitol are avoiding me. Mm. And I, I wasn't lost on why he propositioned me for sex within the first, certainly the first legislative session that we worked together. And I didn't think much of it. I was like, no, I said, no, that's not on the table. And he said, it doesn't have to be on the table, which, you know, when you fast forward to what happened, (laughs) he probably should not have made what he said funny because I remembered Mm -hmm. it verbatim and then used that later in years to get him expelled for sexual harassment. So over time, that kind of behavior, he, he stopped propositioning me for sex. He, he realized that wasn't going to happen. He started calling me his sister, which was weird, especially because I didn't even use his first name. He didn't <laughs> notice the disparity. Like there wasn't a lot of me yeah. in the relationship. He, it was just, he was such a gigantic character in his own mind. <laughs> and it became really oppressive over time. And I decided to stop lobbying in very large part based on feeling completely trapped in his sphere and not seeing a way out. So I dropped my lobbying clients. I stepped off the board of Colorado Voters for Animals. I just stayed home in Fort Collins instead of driving to Denver regularly. And then uh that senator, but at the time representative Faith Winter was in the news accusing um, Lebsack of sexual harassment after I had already decided to to step away. And I knew she was telling the truth. I knew from his own character. I knew from him telling me part of the story, her story. I was kind of a cooperator on her story. Mm. And I just picked up the phone and called her and joined that fight, uh, which ended up being wild and crazy and dramatic and bulletproof vests and manifestos. And it was insane. But that was another opportunity in me understanding how I had ended up in an oppressive situation with a man again. It had some similarities, a lot not similarities, to my marriage. It had some similarities to other uh, work environments I had been in. The first time I was sexually harassed by an adult man was when I was a teenager in chemistry class. It was my chemistry teacher. So there, there were the, it was like, man, the groundhog day of my life. Like you said earlier, this same kind of thing keeps happening. How can I learn from this? What do I need to see? And it, it all came back in my marriage and in, in my workplace problems to a lack of embodied value, not 
believing that I was worthy of respectful, equal treatment. And so how long did all of this self-exploration and hard work take for you to go from, you know, struggling at home, struggling with Lubsock, and then getting to the point where you're like, I think I know enough to write a book. <laughs> I mean, that seems like it could be your whole life, or it seems like it's super fast. Like <laughs> I haven't seen you in a few years, but if you think about it, if, if, if you did all that work in say two, three years, that's incredible. It was probably a little bit longer than that. I started counseling and I remember the first thing I said to this brand new counselor was, I feel oppressed and I don't know why. Mm. Isn't that crazy? Um, I still have the journal where she, cause you know, of course as a good counselor, the first thing she said was get a journal mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's the first thing in it. I, I really had no idea. I knew that I had trouble in my marriage, that we didn't get along, but I didn't have it nailed down as like these very oppressive gender roles and misogyny. Uh, and that's, that's what was at play in this indoctrination from both of our childhoods that fed into the misogyny and gender roles. And I was doing way too much emotional labor and way too much invisible labor. And all the ways that the patriarchy plays out in a marriage, it was playing out in mine. And I didn't know that. That initial, I feel oppressed and I don't know why, was probably 2015 or 16. So I was in counseling regularly every week for two probably years by the time I really confronted the Lebsock thing. And I was planning not to confront oh, okay. the Lebsock thing. I was planning to just slip away. Right. But so I had been in regular counseling for a year or two when the Lebsock situation started up. The Lebsock ordeal was 2017 and 2018. And that it caused a real flare in my marital problems mm. um, the way liberation can. <laughs> mm. And that took another year before I moved out of my family home, left my husband and we were separated. In that year, I was in regular counseling and he was in regular counseling for a year and we couldn't get it together and enough to live in the same house. But counseling continued and the work continued and we moved, I moved back into the house. I remodeled the basement of my house to be my own apartment. That's where I am right now. This is my, my bedroom. And we live as a family. We share the same kitchen and we cook and eat together and we shop together and we live as a family, but I have my own damn space. And well, Virginia Wolf would be proud. <laughs> yes. <laughs> totally. So it's probably been about a five year, six year journey. Wow. Okay. And so was it your idea to write the book or was it sort of like your counselor's idea to say, Hey, you've got such good stuff. You made such good progress. Look at what you're journaling. Let's, let's take it to the next level. It definitely was not my counselor's idea. It was a goal for me, I don't even remember ever not having the goal. Mm. I've always wanted to write a book. I love to write. I always have written. It's usually been op-eds and you know PR for animal protection. 
but it, it still goes back to that, like, take something that matters to me that's really kind of big picture and get into the nitty gritty and illustrate it and break it apart and make it make sense and be really concise. That urge to do that in writing and in speaking has always been with me. So I think I knew I wanted to write a book long before I had the stories for the book. Okay. So how did you come up with the Shiro and would you delineate what that means for the listeners who haven't read the book yet? I had the whole entire manuscript written before I came up with the Shiro. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. So I wrote out the, the process and, and divided it into chapters. I was in an official book writing program through Modern Wisdom Press, which was very valuable. Containers work for me and coaches and that like deadline support structure really works for me. And it got a manuscript out of me with more ease in a quicker timeline than if I'd done it on my own. And that kind of like sent me down this funnel of getting more and more clear, more and more structured. So I had it broken into chapters enough that I knew it was a process, but I was really uncomfortable with any sort of linear picture. Mm, Um, Right knowing that that would cause people to beat themselves up, especially women. I mean, it's a book for women and women thinking that they need to look at my life and follow the steps and get to the end was not what I was going for. So that's how the spiral shape took form. And then the acronym came about from me, me trying, I was trying to make an acronym because of that love I have for simplicity and precision in the way I communicate and being able to remember it and make sense of it and illustrate it really clearly. So I was I was honing on the structure and the simplicity over and over and over again after I had written the manuscript and came up with the acronym on a camping trip by myself at Laramie River, which has since burned down. Oh, so yeah, would you go through the acronym for everybody? Shiro, the S is slow down to hear your true self. The H is harness the wisdom of your patterns. The E is execute boundaries to protect your energy. That's the hard one. Mm -hmm. The R is recreate and attract the relationships you want. And the O is own your energy and march with an open heart. Yeah, it's really good. And I love the cover with the powerful woman. Of course, this will be uh, on the show notes and on my bookshop.org thing so that people can buy it. Um, But can people buy it directly from you as well instead of, you know, a bookstore? No, it's on bookshop.org and IndieBound. You probably know better which one's the best one for me to promote. Um, I don't know your contract of where you'll get the most cha-ching, but. Oh, I don't care. (laughs) Well, I mean, then then Bookshop is just the easiest because it's nationwide and and it makes it super easy and they give back to indie bookstores and stuff. So yeah, let's talk about the whole process of deciding, okay, your manuscript's done. Now, what are you going to do? How are you going to get it out there in the world? (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> kind of wish I had called you first. <laughs> um, 
I just, I went with the round two of the publisher that I had already worked with to get the manuscript written. And I could not have known less what I was doing and got routed into an exclusive situation with Amazon. And that delayed, uh, the book was available, but it delayed me talking about the book being available. It, It delayed me wanting to promote the book because I was like, what? Wait, no, I'm trying to smash the patriarchy here. I can't have only the book available on Amazon. So that added several months of getting the exclusive taken off with them, getting it registered uh, with the distributor that goes to bookstores and libraries. The publisher that I worked with did all of that labor. So I, I still can't say I completely understand the mechanics of it. I was just waiting around, you know, tapping my fingers, knowing that that the delay was what it was, that I just, I wasn't going to be able to promote it without it being available through independent bookstores. And was there an extra fee or what, what did you lose or what did it cost you to give that uh, exclusivity up? It cost me time and there was a fee. It was small, 75, 75, 150, something like that. That's it. Just like 150 bucks. Wow. Maybe I'm guessing, but I remember being like, yeah, and not sweating it too much. I have, this is, I don't know if this is embarrassing. I don't even know enough to be embarrassed by this, but I I don't know what the different royalties are at different places. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's all built into different contracts. It's small everywhere. So I guess I just, yeah, yeah. It could be 10 cents here and a dollar there and right. And a hundred dollars other places. I mean, most people don't get that, you know, the John Grishams of the world get that, but most, most people get pennies. I feel like, you know, I'm at the very beginning of my writing career. You know, I want to sell a million copies and then it, it won't really you know, it'll be fun money, no matter how much the royalty is. So like, I'm trying to be a writer and get the patriarchy smashing started. So I am not counting pennies, which is not to say that I don't need the income I do, but it, it, I haven't been tracking where I make the most to sell here and there because the numbers aren't they don't matter. They're small enough at this point that it doesn't matter. It doesn't make a big enough difference when the long-term zoomed out goal for me is widespread paradigm shifting, patriarchy smashing message so that we can not go extinct. Right. So how do you define patriarchy smashing? I think patriarchy. Oh, that's such a great question. I was going to say, especially within the context of, you know, big publishing houses, no matter who they are. I mean, big publishing houses are a perfect example of patriarchy because they gain, they have so much power that it becomes easy to acquire more power, so easy to acquire more power that, that it's not really even noticed or accounted for which is why the patriarchy is so good at acting like the victim and getting butthurt about being called out. It's, you know, relationships. And well, of course we made the algorithm favor our way. Why wouldn't we? I mean, it's such a small thing for us to do. And then it has this enormous 
impact on the amount of power that it has. So it, it self-perpetuates so easily and so automatically that it's harder to notice and it, it doesn't, uh, it protects itself with the like, what? I wasn't even doing anything. Right. I'm too big to right. I mean, a little, yeah. little ching-ching here with the algorithm. Who cares? And, yeah. you know, relation, it's, it's true in politics that relationships are easier. The access is more if you already have power. So you just get exponentially more and more and more and more until it's challenged or if it's challenged. And, you know, the white male middle upper class patriarchy is full of white middle class upper class men. That's exactly what you would expect it to be. It's exactly what it is. And because we have such intimate access to the to it, I think white women really need to step up and carry some labor for for dismantling it. We are sleeping with it. We are working at the right hand of it. And I believe that it is done at the relationship level. I believe that the most that I could do to smash the patriarchy and the first most fundamental thing for me to do to smash the patriarchy was to smash it in my own mind and to smash it in my own life and to turn towards my intimate relationships, my parents, my husband, my political ally and boss type figure and confront what was happening explain why it was patriarchy and refuse to tolerate it. I want to ask a big picture question, but I think to get at that, we have to ask a small picture question. How does Jason feel about, I'm sure he's read the whole book. He read the manuscript. How did he feel about it? Cause I mean, he's obviously willing and he's doing the work, but he doesn't come off like a big old hero. Yeah at the same time. So how does he feel about that? He is completely open to me discussing our marriage, honestly, which is amazing. I know it's my favorite thing about him. It's maybe my favorite thing in the whole world other than my kid, because that very point is why I can't have a relationship with my parents or my brother. They cannot tolerate me speaking honestly about what I've experienced and it broke the relationship. It, it, there's no space to move forward because I need to speak the truth of what I've experienced in my life. That's what I want to do. And because Jason can tolerate it. And, and at this point he is, he is my biggest fan. He cheers me on. He, you know, stalks my Instagram account and genuinely reads and absorbs and is interested in and engages with my content and will come back to me and say, oh my God, that one really hit me hard today. We talk every day about our personal growth and our attempts to overcome what we were indoctrinated to believe. And he has completely embraced my journey to communicate in writing and in speaking about our relationship. So that's why we're good. That's why we're together. That's why the relationship works is because I'm allowed to talk about it. It's shameful and it hurts him and it's hard to read, but there's now there's this, you know, in the book, he doesn't come off like a hero, but now 
I can say, I believe in radical transformation because of him, because I have seen someone who was full on trained to be a narcissist in narcissism boot camp <laughs> all his life really change. He still repeats his patterns like we all do. His human brain did not, ch- not completely you know, change into something other than a human brain, but he has awareness. He can dismantle and dissect what happened without me having to do all the labor. He can see it himself. He goes away. He can feel when his ego has taken the wheel and he'll go away. He'll give himself some space. He'll stop interacting with me and North and go to his space and take care of himself and figure out what is going on and then come back and talk to us about it and apologize. So he's made a believer out of me that people can really change. Well, I just, I'm doing like the whole Wayne's World bow <laughs> thing and you know, thinking that he's not just a hero, but he's a shiro then. Yes. And I'm just kind of picturing the Parks and Rec episode where Ben gets the woman of the year. <laughs> no, no, wait. And now I'm all messed up. I'll have to watch it because I think it was actually Ron Swanson who got woman oh, of the year. that's just perfect. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm picturing Jason like he needs, uh, I mean, we're at this point, you know, like say with the, the verdict, George Floyd, that justice is not a guilty verdict. You know, it should Jason be patted on the back for all of his work? Well, it's like, well, uh, yes, in a way, but then in the Chris Rock way, what do you want a cookie? You're doing your damn job, you know? Oh yeah. So it's so, it's so hard. Yeah. <laughs> so hard. And his reward is our marriage. And my reward mm-hmm. is our marriage. And I do still, I mean, I am, I'm fairly relentless with like, you don't get a damn cookie. I always have my patriarchy radar on and I'm very conscious of it. And I really don't let a lot slide. I want to be, I I am, I hope, a loving, cooperative person who is rooting for him and caring for him and, you know, giving him acts of service and doing what I need to do to be a true partner in the relationship. But I don't let bullshit slide. And And when it plays out with our kid, I correct it too. You know, if, if I think that something is where he's approaching the kid with the ego, I call it out and where he wants or or has the tendency to kind of like overprivilege our kid, I call it out. Mm. So I don't think it's necessarily that easy to live with me. (laughs) Well, we'll let the listeners decide that. (laughs) So as far as publishing a memoir, it's scary. And you had to obviously get Jason on board. And did you have to go to each and every person and ask them to read it and get it? They're okay. Or did your publisher help you with that? Take caring of like, like the legal thing, like Lebsock. How did you didn't sign anything that says you can't talk about them, obviously. Yeah, it is terrifying. Thank you for seeing that. And it was a big part of the conversation with the publisher. It was a big stressor. With Lebsock, it was in the media and verifiably true. So I could use his name. And with with everyone else, I did not use their name. No, I definitely did not go to everyone and say, here's my manuscript. Are you okay with it? Because the stories are about toxic people who would not be okay with it. Right. right. And I was 
was very scared. I was very, 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 very scared to publish this book. I am still working on the audio book that will be launched in March, but reading it is very difficult. Hmm. Why? You're such a good speaker. I I, I think it's because there, the, there are some real vulnerable parts of the book. Mm. And right. it's been kind of like a throat chakra thing for me where I really feel like I want to do some work making my voice stronger and give it its due. And emotionally, it's just, it's hard to think about recording the audiobook, but I will, I'm going to. I didn't ask for permission. I left identifying variables out. So the people who are in the stories know they that it's them, but no one outside of the stories could identify them. And that was the- right you know, that meets the legal bar. Although the legal bar really is met by not lying. And that was something that I had to discuss with the publisher. They were probably a little bit more conservative than I was. And I said, my goal is not to avoid being sued for slander. My goal is to not slander because Mm. I've got my spotlight on myself. I cannot control what these other people will do. And I have some seriously toxic people in my life, in my past. That's been my pattern. So could they do something really horrible and mean? Yeah. That's the reality of my experiences and my commitment to not keeping them a secret. Well, it's extremely brave. And, you know, the part at the end about Kavanaugh versus Dr. Ford and how like, yeah, you can do things that are scary and still do them. And that's actually called bravery, you fuckwits. Yeah. I th- I thought this book was <sighs> going to be called Seven Feet Tall and Under the Bed. Oh, yeah. You said that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I felt through the whole Lebsack thing. I mean, I was a mess. And, you know, people calling me brave all the time. And I'm like, <laughs> I am. Are you sure? Right. Because you're doing it. You don't, That's not how you feel. It's what you do. So. Yes. Yes. So you know, when you were talking about Jason sort of retreating and figuring his own shit out and then coming back to you, I was thinking about what a corruption of what the world should be, the man cave is. Exactly. Because they're not going there to feel and figure things out. They're going there to recreate and to drink and whatever and to squash down all the feelings that are making him feel uncomfortable. Seriously. I mean, he's got journal yeah. and this like meditation space and uh, yeah that that we would make a man cave a place to dissociate is why the patriarchy hurts men too so i know that you've listened to enough episodes to know that we talk about books all the time and you are one of the ways that, that we're like is that you list very well what books helped you along the way and i We'll just tell people to go and look at that, you know, but what about other books along the way that maybe helped you or influenced you that you want to share that were not put into the book? And if so, why not? Well, one of them is How to Do the Work, the holistic psychologist, Dr. Nicole Napera, and it wasn't out when I wrote my book and that's why it's not in there. Mm. But that's a real guidebook. It covers everything from childhood trauma and the way that that manifests in your brains and your patterns and how to reparent yourself and increase awareness. And I really use it as a workbook. 
I do, it's got a future self journaling exercise at the end of most of the chapters where you're, it's a very small journaling exercise that you do repetitively over and over and over again every day. And I do it every day. And it's simple stuff. It is not like, I will achieve success today and these numbers. And it's, it's like, I'm enough. I'm going to bring some calm to my body today. It's very simple, foundational, retraining your brain stuff. And then The Yellow House is a new memoir about New Orleans that I read recently that I really loved. I devour women's memoirs. I love true stories, women's true stories. So pretty much any women's memoir. Well, I have one to recommend to you if you haven't read it yet. Have you read Leaving Isn't the Hard Part by Lauren? And I think she says it, Huff. Ooh, I got it too. It's H-O-U-G-H. Okay. So fan bloody tastic. I'm only on like chapter four, but excellent writing, really powerful shit. And the kind of stuff that you and Jason can really dig into and talk about. Great. I will give you just a little tiny excerpt of that. Oh my God, this systemic shit that she has gone through as a gay woman in the, well, just gay woman anywhere, but in the military, particularly long story short, because we don't have the time for me to make it make sense, but her car was set on fire, an arson thing. And part of the reason that the military blamed her for it, for like a self-inflicted thing, was because she borrowed and never gave back her roommate's gas tank. Like, you know, the, like the reserve gas can you carry around. And the reason for that was because the last time she had driven this particular path in the South, when she stopped to get gas and go to the bathroom, she was attacked for being you know, the creepy lesbian in the women's bathroom that scared people, right? So they attack her and well, hello, she doesn't want to go through that again. So when she has to go and do that drive again, she borrowed her roommate's gas tank and carried it around so that she could just pee in the car and not have to stop. (sighs) And it's like that kind of stuff you and I have never had to think about, to plan, to work around these horrible things in life. And it's a, it's a great, I memoir. can't wait. I'm definitely going to check it yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's right now, you know, in the top 20 on the New York times list. Fabulous. Yes. Which is definitely more important than any Amazon bestseller. Yes. List. Is it? Yes. Uh, yes. yes. New York times is a good list. I mean, it's better. It's better than the Still probably somewhat a matter of algorithm. It is. It is. I mean, you, you've you heard about how, um, you know, so the GOP will buy up a whole bunch of copies of books to in fake rank their party's like popularity Ugh. by how many books are sold and get to say best-selling author and all that bullshit. So yeah, you can't get away from that because a book sales, a book sales, a book sale in that case. But so obviously I rail against Amazon all the time. Do you have a personal story about that that will give it credence to my general listener who still doesn't get why I rail against them. I mean, the whole system is, is leans you towards Amazon. That's what I meant by the power is so easy. They don't really even know how much they're accumulating. I mean, not that they don't know, but that, that it's so easy that it just automatically keeps accumulating. I didn't have to do anything to get completely exclusively in their clutches. I had to take action Mm -hmm. to get out of their clutches. Mm. So like that, that labor of redoing it 
was a lesson in how automatically everything just flows towards Amazon. And it's true for, for, for animal protection work too. I remember that consolidation, how the vertical integration and the just consolidation of these huge corporate giants, Cargill and Smithfield and these huge meat packers that took the power away from the influence. And that's a recipe for disaster. So the the big, gigantic monopoly-type structures like Amazon and Facebook and Cargill, they're all patriarchy. They're all these highly vertically integrated, steep hierarchies that have the power far away from the impact. They can't make sense for a cooperative future where we work together to save the planet. Right. Because to them, that means losing power. Right. It's built to not lose power. It's built to easily gain it. Yeah. So one of the things that I do besides recommending books and listing all the books in the show notes is sometimes I actually use song titles to name an episode. Mm -hmm. I've done that a few times. And I like that you started every chapter with some lines from songs, mostly that I knew. And if you had to name a lyric, a song title, whatever, for this episode, what would you think you'd call it? Uh, The thing that's coming to mind is Face Up and Sing, Ani DeFranco. Ah, Face Up and Sing. That's good. It's nice that you listen. It'd be nice if you joined in. As long as you play their game, girl, you're never going to win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do, I think, in song lyrics like that and and movie lines too a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So I really, I really... embrace that. I thought that was another similarity between us. So I want to just give a few more practical tips from the book and, you know, encourage people to get it. First of all, I want to say that your fact, let's see if I can do it by heart, fact, feeling, story, and then response. Request. Request. Uh I love, I love that pattern. I, I'm the same way. Writing it down helps clarify, get rid of the extraneous stuff to make sure you're factually a fact and all that. So I've only used it once since I started the book and I'm not sure I would say it went well, but <laughs> better than it went better than it would have gone if I hadn't done it that there way. There you go. So, it's an iteration. Yeah. Right. Now, did you really get that all from yourself or was that part of like a counseling thing that someone made you work through? That particular strategy is from the execute boundaries um, section. So that's the real, like how to communicate a boundary. And that's from crafted leadership, which are the leadership coaches that I have completely fallen in love with here in Fort Collins. They're local. Actually, one of the partners is in Fort Fort Collins. One of them is in Utah and they just have the most integrity of any leadership outfit I've ever seen before. So I learned that technique from them. And it's a very simple way to walk through a conflict and keep the conversation going. And I generally use the word conflict and boundary interchangeably because that's really what they are when you're by the time you're there and you are getting ready to communicate the boundary even if it doesn't end up being a conflict it is in in your mind your brain is approaching it as conflict conflict oh no so it's a conflict resolution process for separating out the facts from what what you're telling yourself about 
the facts, how it's making you feel. And then the request keeps the conversation going. I think one way that misogyny plays out in relationships a lot is that the conversation keeps going based on the labor of the woman all the time. Mm -hmm. And that gets old and we can use our energy on other things. When both people in the relationship have a habit of using this way of communicating, everyone is saying at the end of the conversation, my request is so that there's something on the table to be considered and responded to versus like, I'm upset and dead end. Then somebody is on the hook for figuring out what are we going to do about it? So I really like that strategy. And the other real practical perspective or tactic, I think, is is keeping the spotlight on yourself, which is in probably every chapter so foundational to just every time that you are enemy looping or ruminating or really just dead set on figuring out the other person's role. You turn the spotlight on yourself and you think about the spotlight on yourself. It's very uncomfortable. If you are in a dark basement and there's one other person in the room, you want to put your spotlight on them so you can see where they are. If you put it on yourself, you're completely vulnerable. The other person can see you. And it's hard for you to see yourself. You have to look down at your hand and your clothes. And it is this, it is this shift in perspective that makes you vulnerable and allows you to really examine yourself. And that visual for me has been so powerful because that's where I start realizing like, okay, I have some power here. I could do something different. So I just published an episode yesterday that I thought was really, really good. And I think you'll love it. And as soon as I publish, but it's like sort of internal and it doesn't really go out into the world for sometimes 20 minutes, sometimes over an hour. It's weird. But anyway, I'm listening to this one podcast that then auto played into another podcast. And it was um, Adam Grant reading his article about languishing that he wrote. And I was like, oh my God. In the episode, we talked so much about the conflict between in recovery and doing your own work and getting better. There's all this focus on the individual, the spotlights on you. And sometimes, it's not about us because it's a systemic problem. Like you're saying, we have to fight against all these cultural patriarchal problems. And it's not that we said it badly or anything, but then Adam's very succinct way of putting it was you can't put an individual band-aid on a society's problem. And I was like, Oh my God. So I think you'll, I think you'll really like that episode if you get a chance to listen to it. Yes. I will check it out. Yeah. My only constructive criticism, I won't say complaint about the book is that, as you know, I'm always like, how, how do you do that? How do you make that work? How, how, how? So for example, I'm going to pick apart one thing, the twice a week meeting that you and Jason do, how do you make that work? How do you set aside the time? What's North doing? You know, is he at school? And especially how did you make it work during COVID? So please indulge. Yes. We, it's more than twice a week at this point. We meet, we meet three or four times a week and Jason would come home from work. He was laid off in December, but before that he would come home from work, North sit school and we would have lunch together. And 
write out our menu and make our grocery list on one day. One day we do our, it's our money date where we look at our finances and go through everything. And then we have this geeky, weird homesteading meeting where we like make rice ahead of time and plant the seeds and get the starts going. And we have this little herb box in our kitchen and and sometimes we miss it if people get busy or he wants to go out climbing for the day. And because it's so regular, it's not a big deal to miss it. It certainly would be harder for people who have younger kids that are How around North 11. Okay. So even when he's home for the summer, it'll just be like, you know, we're, he can take care of himself and it's not a problem. It's hard for, it's harder the less support the family has. And apply that to every single thing that anybody ever wants to do in life. Everything is harder for families the younger the kids are and less support they have. So if more of the people in the family are having to work, if less money is left over for childcare, if there's not family around that's supportive and healthy and functional, then everything just gets exponentially more difficult. So I don't want to gloss over it that it's it's easy to do if you set your mind to it. There are, you can't put a personal bandaid on a systemic problem. You know, it, it, for every way that resources and privilege affect humans, it affects, it affects here too. It's harder to have your grocery dates and your money dates. And the how of how we do it is we have it on the calendar, like you and I did for our meeting request to record this podcast and he's invited and we meet in the kitchen and we do it regularly and we cancel it with each other if we need to. And we propose a new new time if we can't make it. And um, we treat it like a coworker meeting. And did he fight about that? Did it feel like yucky? I don't want to do this in the beginning. And then it got easier. Yes. He fought it absolutely at the beginning. And one of the parts of our pattern is that he he's like yeah yeah totally fine yeah mm-hmm, sure vaguing it up is what i call it in the book where he just kind of like oh yeah we'll talk about that and it's like no I, it's on the calendar you hit yes or no and really like nailing in that specificity would how ha- was how i would get to understand that he was opposing it so you know the problem of him opposing it would be buried under this vague not really even admitting that he opposed it And it was a ton of labor for me to draw that out into the light. That's how we got to the place where we were breaking the cycle of me doing all the labor and and got him into counseling. But I never gave up on that part. Just like, I want to have a regular scheduled meeting because that is how I get my interest on the table. If I don't require that there is a time when we talk about food, I will not get what I want because you will just take off doing the things. He's a real doer. He's a doer of the things. And Mm -hmm. if we do not have this time to look ahead at our weekend and decide what we're going to do and write it down and put it in the calendar, I will lose. The reason that I want to do it is not because I'm a spontaneity killer. Thank you very much. It's because my interest will not make it onto the calendar if I don't advocate for them this strongly. So we are going to meet every Monday at 10 and we're going to map out our calendar and our food. And that's how we're going to know that my interests were fairly considered. Wow. So all I can do is tell people that 
I think that this book is helpful and powerful and it's super short. It's like 120 pages, but it is one of those things that you're not going to read through and go, okay, I learned I'm done and put it away. It's something you're going to have to cycle through, reiterate through often. So what iteration are you in right now? Like, how do we leave this? Where is Holly going? That is a great question. I'm still working on my embodied feelings of value, which it's kind of hard to say that because it feels so preliminary, (laughs) you know, that my, if I'm honest about where I'm iterating, I'm on step one, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of problems have been solved in, in my life, or at least moved to a place where I have, I have freed up a lot of energy around them. But I do still absolutely work every day on reprogramming myself to believe that I am equal to everyone else. I mean, the the gender roles were very, very, very strong in my family of origin. And being the baby girl at the bottom of the hierarchy was very much indoctrinated into me. So that's still what I'm working on. That's what's in my future self journal every single morning. It's, I am enough. And I write notes to baby Holly, not even baby Holly, it's teenage Holly. That's when stuff started getting hard for me. (laughs) So my iterations are the really foundational, fundamental, continuing to train my brain that I am valuable. I am enough. I am on time. I am not late. I am not lazy. I am not too loud. I'm just right. Well, that's awesome. I thank you so much for your time. And I appreciate you putting this out in the world and putting this episode out in the world with me. I loved this conversation. I had so much fun. You got deep. Thank you so much for talking to me. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks for coming with such great questions. Oh, you're welcome. And this, of course, will be in the show notes about your book and how to buy it. And anything else you want to promote will also be in the show notes. I am on Facebook. I joined that group that you invited me to. The Love. Oh, that's right. That's right. Grow the Love. You know, Annette is great. And I think her her group is super great and edifying each other. So that's that was important. I thought, hey, you'll connect with these people. Maybe some of those people will buy your book. Oh, yeah. I loved it. And I was like, yes, I want to join this. Oh, she's reading the book. She gets me. She gets me. That's why she invited me to this. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And thank you again. Thank you. I had so much fun and I will talk to you again soon. Yay. I hope so. Well, listeners, thanks for listening to the very end. You know, I appreciate you and all of my followers. Obviously, I talked about my sponsor, betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com. Therapy worked for Holly and Jason. And you heard her just praise and praise the ability to grow and evolve and change by going through therapy and doing the work. So if you are struggling in any aspect of your life, you know, think about, think about if therapy is right for you and BetterHelp will do a short quiz to figure out what you want to work on, what you want to talk about and find you a therapist that meets your needs both thematically as well as your schedule. I hope that that does prove beneficial for you. Other things to note, we are now solidly into June and we're going to have a couple of episodes coming up that are about Uh, let's just say pride themed instead of listing out all the letters. 
pride-themed. And I hope that you will stick around. I hope that you have a really good June and a good Pride Month. And if you are not personally involved in any Pride activities, you know, there's a lot going on online and you can support and be an ally for your friends and relatives. As always, a lot of good information is in the show notes. I've got links there explaining what we were talking about with Amazon and their algorithm and the New York Times and link to Annetta's group, Grow the Love. And if you haven't listened to Annetta's episode, you'll definitely want to go back and listen to that. So I appreciate you all being so patient with me and my schedule and hopefully between now and say the middle of August, the episodes will be coming out more and more regularly. I don't have anything really planned, anything big really planned until the middle of August. So if you are interested in being on the pod, if you have some life stories that hopefully have some serendipitous or the universe or God or whatever word you choose to use working through these stories, please hit me up. And if you don't personally, but you know someone who does, send them to me. I would really appreciate it. All right, take care.